Shalom. This is uh, Brains Online. We're doing a study on tradition. It is uh, July 4th, 2010. Happy Independence Day to those Americans out there. And we're doing a uh, study on Lesson 2, which is Biblical Interpretation or Hermeneutics. Let's open in prayer. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. We are... Uh, Looking at the idea, the concept of uh, biblical interpretation, or hermeneutics, as it's called. And uh, we're going to start with uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1, 19-21. You know, uh, books on hermeneutics, or what's called biblical interpretation, are prominent on uh, most theologians', theologians uh, bookshelves. Hermeneutics are chief in the theologians' craft. The question is, we have to ask is, uh, what craft is it when the origin of the very word that's used to describe it should be warning enough? The word hermeneutics uh, comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which is, uh, comes from Hermes, the demigod uh, of interpretation, who told the people, men, what the gods would say. Uh, The herald of the gods is uh, uh, Mercury, the Roman god Mercury, is the the Roman characterization of this Greek uh, demigod named Hermes. And that is where we get hermeneutics. Uh, It is the interpretation of what God says. But what gods are they that are speaking when men would use a word like hermeneutics to describe their craft? This is the essence of the seminary view of reading of scripture. Uh, Greek mythology is, is, uh, gave us Hermes as, as a one who uh, not only interpreted uh, what the gods would say, but also led men to the underworld, uh, to the place uh, after death. Uh, it's quite fitting, I think, uh, that hermeneutics comes from this word. It's not a biblical science. Uh, it's taught and it's trained as if it were a biblical science, that it's precise in its measurement of, of defining what God says. And there are many different uh, disciplines of hermeneutics uh, taught in seminaries. Each seminary, each denomination, using a different flavor, each uh, using a different uh, method, a different tradition. Uh, but as a tr- Christian tradition, uh, hermeneutics, always leads men and women away from the commandments. Because it is a tradition, and that it, its goal oftentimes is to explain away a text instead of uh, illuminating it. 
how one studies the Bible does matter. Uh, can it be defined as a science is the question. Uh, can we know uh, what the scriptures say without the use of a hermeneutic or a tradition? Uh, how we study Bible, though, frames everything else from which we, we receive from scripture. How we study the Bible provides the rules for how the language of the Bible is to be processed by the mind and then presented to the will to either reject or to do. Some questions to ask as we do this uh, discussion on uh, Lesson 2. Does the way someone studies or explains Scripture itself constitute a tradition? Is it possible to study Scripture without the bias of our own way of studying Scripture? Won't the Holy Spirit cut through our bias and teach us from God's Word? And lastly, what is... Why is so much attention given to hermeneutics in Christian seminaries? Of course, from our introduction, we've probably answered, or at least uh, uh, given a view of uh, our view on some of these questions. Let's talk a little bit about the background on this tradition, this tradition of hermeneutics. In the second century of the Common Era, church historian uh, Hegesippus wrote that after the apostles all died, there was all manner of heresy that sprouted up. And here's the quote. Uh, as it comes to us, it fragments, uh, translated by uh, Roberts Donaldson. Up, up to that period, the church had remained like a virgin, pure and uncorrupted. For if there were any persons who were disposed to tamper with the wholesome rule of the preaching of salvation, they still lurked in some dark place of concealment or other. But when the sacred band of apostles had in various ways closed their lives, and that generation of men to whom it had been vouchsafed to listen to godlike wisdom with their own ears and passed away, then did the confederacy of godless error take its rise to the treachery of false teachers, who, seeing that none of the apostles any longer survived, at length attempted to bear and uplift attempted with bare and uplifted head to oppose the preaching of the truth by preaching knowledge falsely so called. And that's uh, from Hegesippus. Uh, we do not have actually a, a, a volume of Hegesippus. Uh, most of what we get of Hegesippus is actually uh, quoted by, uh, by other uh, historians, um, uh, such as Eusebius. But we have this, uh, this quote showing how uh, early on, after the apostles had died, that immediately the church, as it called, uh, essentially descended into all manner of heresy because no one was there to stop them. It's an interesting thought to me. What is it that could keep us from heresy? Early church fathers uh, in the 2nd century married Platonism. Some of the earliest church fathers, fathers such as uh, Justin Martyr, uh, and later, uh, uh, much later, Origen, and much later than that, uh, uh, Augustine. But some of, uh, some of the early church fathers as well were uh, Platonists, and they married a Greek philosophy with Scripture and their reading of Scripture. They were enamored by uh, Philo, or Philo as he's called uh, in English, uh, uh, a a, a Jewish uh, uh, historian philosopher who uh, wrote uh, from Alexandria and uh, wrote in Greek. Uh, they were enamored in, by him because he 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 seemed to marry uh, Judaism and uh, Greek philosophy. And their training in, in classical Greek the, uh, philosophy, married with the religion that they were forming, uh, early Christianity, uh, was, a, was a perfect mix where they were able to uh, 
annul parts or uh, turn parts of Scripture into metaphors and, and uh, uh, ethereal teachings without getting into the hard and fast. Uh, and they were allowed to promote their, their, their brand of asceticism that, that uh, um, gave them a sense of piety. Uh, this uh, combination of uh, Platoism and Scripture is really the basis for early Christianity as it was coming out in the sec- second century. And from this mix and from this, uh, as we've seen, heresy sprouting up, there was a systemic heresy that we now call replacement theology that, that, that uh, took root and uh, became a principal method by which to scri- read scripture. This false teaching of uh, what we call, now call replacement theology or supersessionism attempted to answer this question. What about the Jews? And, and it was with anti-Semitic and extra-biblical answers found within Greek philosophy that they were able to answer that question to their satisfaction, creating a whole system of, of, uh, of theologies that flowed from that. And by abrogating this literal approach to God's word, in order to rid themselves of the Jews and the commandments, they were able to uh, open up many other avenues for other heresies that came. But without the Deuteronomy 4 principle, which reminds us that we are not to add or to take away from Scripture, the only method for, for early church fathers to maintain their brand of orthodoxy was to place all interpretation to the exclusive domain of the church or uh, theolo- uh, theological professionals. Uh, and hence you have the early formation of, uh, um, of approved teachers, churches approved teachers, uh, and a doctrine, the false doctrine of apostolic succession and church infallibility. And they formed from this a, a teaching doctrine, the magisterium, which became the sole interpreter of scripture. If you control the language, if you control what something means, you control the minds of the people. And this is precisely what, what became the, the Roman Catholic Church did in the early period. They were able to uh, take scripture and uh, interpret it in a certain way and then to tell everyone else that they were not permitted to interpret it any other way. There was an approved interpretation only. Uh, the, the, this magisterium, this teaching doctrine of the church as it became known as the magisterium is now, is, it was, was then and is now considered infallible. Even God himself is bound by the doctrinal views of the church even if they change their mind. Uh, That's what the magisterium would would teach. The principles behind this apostolic succession and the magisterium come from a twisted view of Matthew 16, 18 through 19, which we're going to look at here in a little while. You know, it's really easy to pick on uh, Roman Catholics uh, when when it comes to this because uh, they inherited, uh, they became the, the... the standard bearer of the Antinicene fathers, the early church fathers. Uh, however, Protestants are no better. Uh, 
in the 16th century, when Protestantism rose uh, through the teachings of men like Calvin and Luther, uh, they, they, they cried out, and their rallying cry to the masses was sola scriptura, only scripture. They would define their lives and their faith only by scripture, not by the, not by the, the approved teachings of the Roman Catholic Church or the magisterium or papal bulls, or, or, uh, nor did they believe in apostolic succession. And yet, they still applied that same or a similar uh, metaphorical view, interpretive model to Israel in the commandments. You can see early writings of both Luther and Calvin. This, they, they only went so far. They still retained the hermeneutic of the Roman Catholic Church. Later on, when we get to the 19th century and the development of dispensationalism within Protestant uh, denominations, uh, this alternate theology, uh, as opposed to supersessionism or replacement theology, this alternate theology still tried to answer the question, what about Israel? What about the Jews? This, this new uh, uh, approach certainly was better, it didn't replace, didn't condemn, didn't curse the Jews. However, it still remained a safe distance away from the Jews and tried to explain away the applicability of the commandments. And the reason why I think that both of these disciplines, both of these uh, interpretive disciplines, hermeneutic disciplines, uh, resulted in, this, uh, in, in the same outcome is because is because Roman Catholicism and Protestantism share the same hermeneutic or share the ultimate same hermeneutic when it comes to Israel. They think that scriptures can be amended. For Roman Catholics, they believe that they can amend the scriptures by church decree. And we've seen this time again throughout history. Church degree is enough. The, the Catholic Catechism has no difficulty at all with the, with the first day being called, uh, being the day of worship or the sacred day. They, the question in the Catechism is, what day is the Sabbath? And they will say, the Sabbath is the seventh day. Then why do we worship and why is the first day sacred? And they said, because the decree of the Holy Church has made the first day sacred. So they say, hey, we moved from Saturday to Sunday because the church said so, and we're infallible, and God is bound by our decree. That's for the Roman Catholic. That's how they believe that church, that, excuse me, that scriptures can be amended. For Protestants, how do they believe that scriptures can be amended? It's a more subtle view, but it, they do believe it. They believe that the Old Testament was amended by the apostles. They believe that the Old Testament was amended by the apostles. They believe that the apostolic scriptures replace the, the, what they call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. They believe that the apostles, first Jesus, and then the apostles, annulled commandments found within the Old Testament. This is a man-made tradition. It's a hermeneutic that is a man-made tradition. A man-made tradition of how you read Scripture. You can go to any, uh, any pastor out there, and uh, with all likelihood, if you begin to uh, present to them the uh, continuity and the eternal nature of all Scripture, they will begin to immediately go into what they call the New Testament and show you passages that they say are that contradict or amend or annul the Hebrew Scriptures. That is a man-made tradition. They're permitted to do that. Their tradition 
of hermeneutics, their tradition of interpretation of scripture permits them to make such a dramatic and false statement. Scripture is written in the language of men. It was written to be understood not by the experts but by simple men and women who read it and obey. When someone has the gall to say, my pastor says, or even my rabbi says, he is admitting that he does not think that God can speak for himself. We all need to remember that we were promised in John chapter 15 a comforter, an interpreter, the only interpreter that we need to teach us the truth. But we should also remember that Scripture was given for us to understand it. It was written in our language, human language, with our thought patterns. God does not think like us. And yet He came down and presented his word, a revelation of himself, in human terms, so that we could understand. God meant to be understood. He did not mean to hide it, so only experts could read it and understand it, and then interpret it for us. This idea that the scriptures need to be interpreted, both in Roman Catholicism, which says only the experts are permitted to study the scriptures in Latin, and only the experts are permitted to explain them. Or Protestantism, that by its very uh, practice, teaches the same thing, where one man stands up on Sunday morning and preaches the truth to the masses who could not find their way out of the building without his help. Scripture is self-validating. It does not need a professional to explain it. There's a very good test. It's called the Desert Island Test. It goes like this. If you were on a desert island and you had a Bible written in the language that you speak and you had never had any experience off that desert island except to have this one book, how would you read it? What would it say? Would you take it literally? If no one was there to explain it, would you permit it to speak for itself? I think this is a good idea. It is a simple childlike response to thou shalt and thou shalt not. That is the essence of faithfulness. Trusting the one who gave it as understandable, as clear, as a revelation of his love for us. In modern language, in modern times, we have a thing called a cyclic cyclic redundancy check, a CRC. Those who are involved in in computers or networks knows that it validates data. Data is validated by sending an authentication packet first. Works like this. The first block of data that comes across has a mathematical code that describes all the data that that, uh, that follows. And then each 
each uh, bit of data that comes across is measured against that, that authentication code. It measures it and sees whether the pattern is there. And if the pattern's not there, then that data packet is rejected, is invalid. A, re a request goes send again. Maybe it got corrupted in the meantime or in, in, the, in between. Ultimately, though, if it does not match the pattern of what is first sent, it is rejected. It's invalid. The Torah is like a CRC. It validates all that follows. This is the biblical model. God spoke, and he said that anything that follows must, must match this. So we can't take the apostolic scriptures and say, listen, here's where it says it undoes that. Because all we have to wait for, beloved, is for another, is for another prophet to stand up and say, oh, no, no. Here's a new revelation of what God really desires, and it annuls all the previous revelations. This is the essence of the Book of Mormon, or any number of other false cults. When we go down the slippery slope, where we believe that God can amend his message, that God is the one who changes his mind, that his word first said no longer stands, then we are opened and susceptible to all manner of heresy, just as we saw took place in the second century. If it doesn't match what was revealed to the servant Moses, it should be deleted. The message is false, and it should be rejected. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through, 12, 1 through 2 says this. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which Hashem God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the words, the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Hashem your God, which I command you. Question. Is anyone permitted to add to or take away from the commandments given by God? Deuteronomy 4, 2 says, You shall not add to the word which I command you nor shall you take away from it. And tells us specifically why. That you may keep the commandments of Hashem. Is there anything in this passage that indicates whether God might amend those commandments himself? No, of course not. He simply says, don't add to and don't take away. And the reason why is that you would keep the commandments. Go to Deuteronomy 4, verse 36. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. How did God speak in Deuteronomy 4? How did God speak in Exodus 20? He spoke so that they could hear. Moses didn't go into a trance there at Mount Sinai and tell them what God said. They heard with their own ears what God said. There was no question that he had spoken. Go to Numbers chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. Numbers 12, 5 through 8. Then Hashem came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Hashem, make himself known to him. Make myself known to him in a vision. 
I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of Hashem. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Question. How did Israel receive this revelation of God, his commandments? Both directly in their own hearing and through the, and through the uh, elucidation and the addition of what Moses said that God said. And what do we heard more than any other phrase repeated in scripture? That any other single phrase repeated is, And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to my people, Israel, saying, It wasn't Moses' idea. It wasn't Moses' interpretation. It was simply Moses speaking what God said. Question. How does God describe this revelation? When he compared it to the way that other prophets, worthy, pious prophets, receive instruction from him. Did God explain this in Numbers chapter 12, this revelation through Moses, as superior or inferior? No. He makes the point to say, I speak to a prophet in a vision, in a dream, in dark sayings. Not so with Moses. I speak to him face to face, plainly. The words recorded in the Torah are plain, simple words. Do we understand it? We don't understand it all. But we can certainly hear the plain instructions and act upon them. How do the commandments relate to true or false prophecy? Turn to Numbers chapter 12, verse 32, and we'll read through Numbers 13, 11. Listen to how we know a true prophet or a false prophet. Numbers 12, 32. Whenever I command... Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to nor take away from it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he has spoken to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Hashem your God is testing you to know whether you love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Hashem your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you away from from the way in which Hashem your God commanded you to walk. You shall put away the evil from your midst. If your brother, son of your mother, son of your, or son, your son or your daughter, your wife of your bosom, or your friend who is it, as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which we have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the peoples which are all around you, near to you, far off from you, from one end of the other to the one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor you shall nor shall you I shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him, your hand shall be the first against him, 
to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, and you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, bondage, so all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do wickedness, such wickedness as this among you. These are serious words. What is the mark of a true prophet? What is the mark of a false prophet? I've heard it said that a true prophet says what will happen and it will. But that's not the mark of a true prophet. The mark of a true prophet is that he doesn't say what will happen and it doesn't. And that he does not lead you away from the commandments. The mark of a false prophet is that he leads you away from the commandments of God. How do the commandments relate to true or false prophecy? They are the test of the interpretation of what God has said. Have you heard from a pulpit or a bima that which turned you away from the commandments? Then, beloved, you have heard false prophecy. Deuteronomy 18. 9 through 19. Deuteronomy 18. 9, 9, 9. When you come into the land which Hashem your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells or mediums or spiritists, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are abomination to Hashem. And because of these abominations, Hashem your God drives them from, you, from before you. You shall be blameless before Hashem your God. For these nations which you dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, Hashem your God has not appointed such for you. Hashem your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of Hashem, your God at Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, let, us, let me not hear again the voice of Hashem my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Hashem said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Question. Who is the one? Who is speaking when he says, Hashem your God will raise up for you a prophet like me? Who's me? It's Moses speaking. Moses is speaking this. He's saying that God will raise up a prophet. Not like those soothsayers. Not like those false prophets. But God's going to raise up a prophet like me. Who is the prophet like me? Who is he speaking of? Who is Moses speaking of? The prophet like Moses. Go to Acts chapter 3, 22. For Moses, this is, this, this is uh, Peter speaking. For Moses truly said to the fathers, Hashem your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him shall you hear in all things. Whatever he says to you. Who is this that he was speaking of? Who is Peter speaking of? 
He's speaking of Yeshua, his master. He's speaking of Messiah Yeshua. He's the one raised up like Moses. Let's, let's review. How did Moses receive prophecy? Did he have a vision or a dream? No. God spoke to him face to face. Plainly. So this new prophet, this prophet like Moses that would come, this Yeshua, this Messiah, how would he receive instruction? How would he bring us the revelation of God? Plainly. Plainly. In words that can be understood. Go to John chapter 1 verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Yosef. We found him, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him, this one of whom Moses spoke in the Torah. And the prophets wrote, go to John chapter 5, verse 30. This is Yeshua speaking. I can of myself, myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Go to John chapter 12, verse 49 through 50. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a commandment. What I should say and what I should speak and I know that his commandment, that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Did Yeshua teach anything that was not first given to him? Did Yeshua teach anything contrary to what had already been given? Based on what we've seen in Deuteronomy 13, how we know a false prophet. Deuteronomy 4, not to add to or take away. Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses who would come and speak as God spoke to Moses, clearly, face to face. And John chapter 12, was Yeshua a false prophet or a true prophet? How do we know a true prophet from a false prophet? Because he teaches and leads us in the commandments of God. He does not lead us to another God. He does not lead us to other gods. He does not tell us not to teach the commandments of God. We know that Yeshua is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. One like Moses. We know that he is Messiah. We know that he is son of the living God because he keeps the commandments of God. It doesn't matter if he, is, if he had never been resurrected or it doesn't matter if he was resurrected. If he didn't keep the commandments of God he would have been declared a false prophet and rightfully stoned. No, beloved. He is not a false prophet. He is Messiah. He is our master. And he has been proven to be such because he kept the commandments of God.
Galatians 1, 10 through 12. Galatians 10, Galatians 1, 10. For I do now, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Messiah. This is Paul speaking. But I make known to you, brethren, that the good news which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor as I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. Acts 17, 10-11 Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. But when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Where did Paul receive his revelation? From Messiah Yeshua himself, he says. Did he ask that his readers take him at his word? Did he stand up and say, I'm the prophet, listen to me? Or did he expect that they would measure his revelation against the standard, against scripture? What was that standard? What scripture was it that the believers at Berea, those that were more fair-minded, those more noble in Berea, what scriptures did they compare Paul's words to? This revelation of Messiah Yeshua, not taught by men, what scriptures did they compare it to? The Hebrew scriptures, the Torah. That's what they compared it to. Paul could not have taught something different than the Torah. If he was a follower, if he was a disciple of Messiah Yeshua, who only spoke what the Father told him to speak, who is not a false prophet, but a true prophet, not contradicting what was said previously, if Paul was a disciple of Messiah Yeshua, then he could not have contradicted him. And if Paul expected his readers and those who listened, those hearers of what he taught, to compare what he said to the Torah, then Paul could not possibly have been called or have been accused of being a false prophet because his words were consistent. But you may say, his words don't seem consistent to me. I hear all the time people say, but what about the book of Galatians? What about Romans chapter 14? What about 1 Corinthians chapter 8? What about Acts chapter 10? Luke's account of Peter and the sheep being let down. Where did the apostles get this new idea? If they are following a true prophet who consistently taught the same as the old idea. Beloved, that is a man-made tradition. A hermeneutic that cancels out the commandments of God, explains them away through a systemic theology that at its very core is anti-Semitic, which makes it anti-God and a false teaching and heresy. Let's read Matthew 16, 18-19 where this hermeneutic came from. 
where this idea came from that uh, that uh, the apostles that that Yeshua himself or the and the apostles that followed Peter could change the words of the living God. Matthew sixteen eighteen through nineteen. This is Yeshua speaking. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my, my synagogue, my assembly. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. From this, Roman Catholics built the doctrine of apostolic succession. Peter's the first pope. Each pope after carries that authority. From this, the doctrines of church teaching and the infallibility of church teaching, the infallibility of papal bulls and decrees, ex cathedra. These are from this passage, these two verses. Protestantism takes this and says, no, no, Peter's not the first pope and it didn't all mean to be that way and yet they still accept the same Roman Catholic hermeneutic that the apostles could change the words of the living God. That the apostles could come up with new ideas. New scripture that undid previous scripture. Turn to Matthew 19, 27 through 28. Then Peter answered and said to him, speaking to Yeshua, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Yeshua said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the generation when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These twelve apostles, these twelve disciples will be judges. The apostles will be judges. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 through uh, 6. Actually, uh, verse 12 and then we'll skip to chapter 6, verse 7. For whatever I, had, I do to you, for what, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And he adds in there that you yourselves will judge angels. Each community, each community of believers should have judges to decide disputes, a bet deen, or a house of judgment. Go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, and you have, ga- you have gained your brother, but if he will not hear, take with you, one or two, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, to the assembly. But if he refuses to hear, even, if he even refuses to hear the assembly, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What is this? This is a church discipline? What is this? This is Torah. This is assembly of judges. Verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their, I am 
there in their midst. So we hear this have this idea of binding and loosing again. Whatever bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. But here it's in the framework and in the discussion of having two or three witnesses. What is this? This is a Beit Din. This is a house of judgment. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about giving them the authority to act as judges. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two, from two or three witnesses. As students of the Torah, you know any time you see that two or three witnesses, you know it's speaking of what is acceptable as fact. Only by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Just anybody? Any two or three? No. What are valid witnesses? What are valid witnesses? Valid witnesses are men of integrity. Men who saw one another witness the act. You know how difficult it is to have men have two or three witnesses? It is. Yet the standard of establishing fact is two or three witnesses. This is the house of judgment that's being spoken of. So when Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 16, whatever you bind on earth, whatever, shall be bound on earth, whatever, whatever you loose uh, in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, he's not speaking about uh, binding and loosing demons. He's not speaking of making up new law. The very, the very suggestion that Yeshua in chapter 16 of Matthew, or in chapter 18, in chapter 19 of Matthew, that he is giving the, his apostles permission to take out commandments and add new commandments. That very notion is ignorant of the scriptures. It is a heresy and a false teaching. It is the definition of a false prophet. Yeshua never would have given his disciples that authority. Because to do so would be deny who he was as a true prophet and would brand them as false prophets. Rightly so. No, that's not true. What is this binding and loosing? Roman Catholic dogma treats Matthew 16, 1-19 as if it's carte blanche for the church to do whatever it wants, adding to and removing scripture and the Volumes are full of it. Yet John 14.10 Listen what Yeshua says. Do not believe that do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Yeshua did not derive his own authority from himself. He derives it solely from the words given to him. The scriptures themselves. How many times do we hear him say, It is written. It is written. It is written. What was Yeshua's method of interpretation? He didn't have a hermeneutic. Because God spoke to him clearly and plainly, face to face as the prophet Moses. Beloved, if you want to hear the clearest word from God, 
open up the first five books and read it. Do you want to do his will? It's right there in plain translated English for you. If Yeshua himself did not have the authority to add to or to take away, what does bind and loose really mean? The word bind in Greek is deo, and the word loose is luo. They correspond in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, to the word asar, the Hebrew word asar, which means to bind, and the uh, Hebrew word uh, natar, which means to loose. What's interesting is these are technical words that are found a lot in Mishnaic Hebrew in the Mishnah. They're used extensively. They're all throughout the Mishnah. They're constantly being referred to. And the Gemara of the Talmud and commentary on the, on the Mishnah in using Aramaic equivalents to these words uses them repeatedly. Here's some examples. This is from the Mishnah in Pe'ah 5.6. If one sells a field, the vendor is permitted. And that is the word mutar, which comes from natir. One is permitted. So the word permitted in English, in the English version of the Mishnah, is mutar. To gather the dues of the poor, but not asur, from the root asar, the purchaser. So here it is. You're bound to gather the dues of the poor, but not, you're loosed, the purchaser. Here's another one, Mishnah, Teramot 5.4. I've just given these couple examples uh, in the workbook. If a seah of unclean teramah fell into 100 seahs of clean teramah, bet shemai prohibit, that is, they loose, or excuse me, they bind the whole, but Beth Hallel permits it or looses it. So this bind and loose are technical terms used throughout the Mishnah, Allahat. What are they used to do? How are they used to, re- to refer to? What is, the, what is this technical meaning? They're not to establish new commandments. Uh, there are some Messianic teachers that use the teaching of, of Matthew chapter 16 and a perverted view of the Mishnah, a misapplication of the Mishnah, to somehow teach that the rabbis made new commandments. That's just nonsense, and anybody that says that has no view of, of Judaism in it at all. Judaism would be aghast at the idea that the commandments could ever be annulled or added to. But rather, these terms, to bind and loose, mutar, natir, asur, asar, bind and loose, these terms are used to, uh, are, are used to uh, talk about the binding and loosing of a, a teaching, the binding and loosing of a tradition. This tradition no longer does not apply to you. This We don't have to do this. That's to loose someone. You do have to do this if you're going to be in this congregation, in this community, this local binding and loosing. Certainly within the Mishnah, we find it within two houses, Bet Shammai and Bet Halil, did things differently, kept different traditions. They bound, one, they bound their own or loosed their own to do certain things that the other group was not permitted to or was required to do. These, com- these words are not used to establish new commandments or to engage in combat with demons, leaders, or prophets, or pastors. They're abused by such. And theologians. It's a misapplication of Matthew 16:18, And it's brought unparalleled bondage and error. 
Rather, binding and loosing are used to decide disputes over how to keep the little commandments. They're about how a community decides how to obey, not whether or what to obey. When Yeshua gave authority to his disciples, he was establishing, in Matthew chapter 16, he was establishing a big being, a house of judgment, a community of judges, his disciples, his apostles, to determine the halakha, the traditions, the teaching, the way of walking out the commandments for each community, and to settle community disputes. Matthew 16, 18-19 is best, is best seen as an establishment of Beit Yeshua, the house or school of Yeshua. There's a Beit Halil in Judaism. There's a Beit Shammai in Judaism. In Messianic Judaism, there's a Beit Yeshua. Our Master's house. How He taught us. Not to go away from the commandments. Not to teach something different than the commandments. But how to keep the commandments as He did. There is a tradition. There is a tradition how you read the scripture. How we all read the scriptures. This is a tradition. The test of tradition questions. How does this tradition the tradition that you read scripture. Does it help you keep the commandments? Does it help you keep one commandment yet obscure a more important commandment? How does the way that you read scripture, your tradition of reading scripture, does it turn, a, turn you away from the commandments? How does your tradition of reading scripture deal with Yeshua? Does it deny that He was Messiah? Does your tradition of how you read Scripture cause division between Jew and Gentile? If you accept a tradition that someone else has in approaching you and how they read Scripture or reject it, is it to make a distinction between greater Israel? If you can answer no to all those questions, then I have the last question. Does your tradition and how you re read scripture unnecessarily burden you? Is there another way to keep the commandment in question and maintain peace with your brothers and sisters? How you read scripture can affect everything else that you do. This is a very serious tradition. Which tradition will you follow? I used to follow a Baptist tradition, a Calvinist tradition of reading Scripture. I could read it and it could say plainly what I saw it to say. And yet arguing with others of a different tradition, a different hermeneutic, they could see as plainly something exactly opposite. What tradition do you keep? when you read scripture. The tradition that I follow now is a tradition, an ancient tradition. An ancient tradition of Judaism that says the first way that we should read scripture is well, what does it say? God speaks in the language of men. Why would he want you to think something different from what it says plainly? Does it explain everything? No. This is another tradition of Judaism. God is infinite, transcendent above us. We can never know everything about Him. 
And if we have disagreements or questions that cannot be answered by plain reading, we endeavor to dig deeper and to keep looking, but not to condemn those that disagree with us. Because after all, who can know if it's not written plainly? God only tells us how we should study Scripture by example. That's why it is a tradition how we read Scripture. Because He only tells us by example. What example does He give? He doesn't have a list of do's and don'ts. If you study Scripture, start it this way. Read the text, then compare the words, and look up all the cross-references. These are great ways to study Scripture, but it's a discipline. It's, not a, it's a tradition. It's not what God said we had to do to read His Word. Hence, how we read Scripture is a tradition. We need to make sure that the tradition is consistent with God's will. How did Yeshua read Scripture? How did He interpret it? Not by a private interpretation. That's what Paul says to Timothy. He wasn't allowed to have his version. Paul didn't get to have his version of what the Scripture said. Well, it's okay for you, but I interpret it differently. Paul would not have used those words. Scripture was... Scripture. It was the truth. It meant what it meant. It still means what it means. It's plain. It's patterned after how he spoke to his servant Moses with faithful in his house. Plain. Not in dark sayings. Not in a dream or a vision. But face to face. Acts 17, 10-11. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Our prayer focus this week is from the uh, Shimona Esrei, found in the Art Scroll Complete Sidur, page 107. Birkat Hadin, the blessing for justice. Restore our judges as in earliest times, and our counselors as at first. Remove from us sorrow and groan and reign over us, you, Adonai alone, with kindness and compassion, and justifies through judgment. Blessed are you, Adonai, the king who loves righteousness and judgment. Let's close in prayer. We thank you, O Adonai our God that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you not, have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. destruction. As it is written, And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Shalom.